This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 335th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a remarkably talented singer, songwriter, actress, producer, fashion icon, and social activist who is changing the game and seemingly can't miss with anything she does. Described by The Guardian as, quote, James Brown reborn in a more advanced female future, close quote, and by former First Lady Michelle Obama as, quote, an incandescent talent, close quote. She's an eight-time Grammy nominee whose three massively acclaimed albums, 2010's Archandroid Suites 2 and 3, 2013's The Electric Lady, and 2018's Dirty Computer, blended pop, funk, soul, and R&B, whose first two films, Moonlight and Hidden Figures, both released in 2016, won the Best Picture Oscar and the Best Ensemble SAG Award, respectively, and who is now garnering raves for her work as the lead on the second season of the Amazon Prime drama Homecoming, on which she plays a military veteran who wakes up one day in a canoe in the middle of a lake with no memory of her past and has to piece her life back together. I'm talking, of course, about the great Janelle Monet. Over the course of our conversation, the 34-year-old and I discuss how both singing and acting were a part of her life long before she became famous, how... While performing in Atlanta, in college dorm rooms and on library steps, she attracted the interest of outcast Big Boy, and subsequently Diddy, who signed her to his label Bad Boy Records. Why, from her earliest EP up until 2018, she inhabited the alter ego Cindy Mayweather, an Afrofuturist android freedom fighter, and why she stepped away from that persona for the first time with Dirty Computer, which was released a day after she came out in Rolling Stone as pansexual, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, Janelle, thank you so much for 
joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. And um, I guess just before we dive in like we normally would, I want to just ask how you're doing. It was hard enough when it was just the pandemic. Then we had all the stuff of the past week or so. Uh, and I know that you have been very active with Black Lives Matter since 2015, I think, and marching. And then you had your song, uh, Hell You Talking About, and all that. So I guess I just wonder how you're doing during this weird time. I am angry. I am sad. I am processing and trying to figure out how best uh, I can be of help. I've always, through my work, through how I was raised, spoke out, you know, against any police brutality or abuse uh, of my people, of black people. So, you know, it may be new to folks in 2015, maybe they thought that was the first time, but this has been a lifelong purpose of mine to honor black people, black bodies um, through my work. And whenever I see something like what we've been seeing to unequivocally denounce and let the world know that we're not going to accept the way we have been treated uh, in this country. And I think right now, because of the pandemic, and not only is the pandemic killing Black people at a higher rate than any other group because of our failed healthcare systems, because of our close proximity to one another, living in communities, apartment buildings, and the way, the way that systemic racism has been a roadblock to us being able to take care of ourselves, the way that that has been set up has taken away a lot of lives in the Black community during COVID-19. So not only are we fighting to stay alive from COVID-19, not only are we protesting with masks on our face, trying to stay healthy, protesting the killings of our Black community, we're still having to fight with this administration. We're still having to fight, you know, the police system. We're still having to talk about the concept of does a black life matter or not? And that is so upsetting. And I think that the bigger question for me is what are white people gonna do? How are you going to dismantle the delusion of white supremacy? How are you as white people going to dismantle systemic racism that your ancestors helped build? And that's the conversation that I I am upset that has not been had enough. The amount of conversations that it's going to take for families, for white families to have those conversations, for white corporations to have those conversations, it's not enough. And the ball has been and is still in the hand, in the court of, 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 of white people. Well, we will uh, obviously circle back to this when we talk about some of the music that you've made over the years. But I guess, you know, where we always generally begin on the podcast is just the beginning of our guest story. So for the record, for people who may not know, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? 
Well, my mom and dad were born and raised in Kansas City, Kansas. So I was born in Kansas City, Kansas in a county called Wyandotte County that was named after a Native American princess. And um, my grandmother had 12 kids. I grew up with 50 first cousins. <laughs> yeah, so I, I had a, a, a built-in school, you know, and family that I that has inspired my work, inspired the decisions that I make when I take on certain projects. Uh, my mom, her last occupation and growing up, she has been a maid. Her last occupation, she was a custodian. She cleaned up uh, the high schools in, in our community. Uh, she, you know, and my dad, uh, his last occupation, he was uh, a trash man and picked up the trash. So my parents are essential workers. And that's why I have like the deepest respect for essential workers because I watched my parents wake up and put on their uniforms every single day. Uh, my grandmother served food in the county jail um, for like 25 years. So I grew up around a lot of uh, great heroes in our community and you know, our community couldn't survive without people like my parents and my grandparents. And I think for people who sort of discovered you as someone who was doing something a bit unusual in that most of the time we saw you in a tuxedo, for instance, that wasn't a coincidence. That was your own sort of tribute to the uniforms of the people you just mentioned, right? Absolutely. Yes, I'm smiling because I just I get so much joy thinking about, you know, the family that I came from, the legacy that I came from, even in spite of how you know, the majority of the world and certain laws and systems treated them, you know, how rigged the game is for my family, uh, they persevered. And I, I made it a mission of mine to wear black and white and wear my uniform to pay homage uh, to them, you know, to the maid, to uh, the person, you know, serving this country, to, you know, folks like my grandmother, who was a sharecropper in Aberdeen, Mississippi, uh, where she grew up. And so... Yes, that that is uh, something I think and, and it kind of turned into fashion, but it, it was deeply rooted in community and family. I want to ask you more about your grandmother. I think it's the same grandmother that we're talking about, because another thing that came to be very associated with you is sci fi. And from what I understand from my prep for this, she was sort of instrumental in introducing you to that when you were a kid and in a way fueling your imagination, which you then took to different places with writing and stuff that, you know, I, I, I certainly didn't know about you until I was reading that you were a monologue competitor. You were into Shakespeare. <laughs> Just some of that. I wonder if you can uh, share with people, because I don't think they most many people know that about you. Sure. Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm just thinking about those long two hour rides uh, to our school. My high school would compete in monologue competitions. So, yes, I am an international thespian. Uh, and I wear that proudly. Doing those monologue competitions taught me so much about performing and, you know, public speaking and um, acting. And I also was a part of a um, young playwrights roundtable with young teens who would write these short stories. And if it was good enough, the local actors would perform them. And so I grew up writing short stories. I grew up, you know, going to Shakespearean after school programs. 
Um, so yes, I was heavily involved in, in into theater, and and my teachers gave me my recommendations to go to school in New York, the American Musical and Dramatics Academy. And just to come back for a second, though, to sci-fi, do you remember how that captured your imagination for the first time? Books, and I think it was the Goosebumps. The Goosebumps gave me my first love and, yeah, my love love for science fiction. Photosynthesis was something that I was so into. I would always, and I would always ask my mom for Christmas, please buy me a science kit, like a science experiment kit. And that's, that's really all I asked for for Christmas because I loved science. I loved going into unknown territory and, and my grandmother pulling it back around to, to what you mentioned earlier. My grandmother and I would share our love for the Twilight Zone. We would watch the Twilight Zone a lot whenever, you know, she was watching me or I live, we lived with my grandmother too for a significant amount of time. And we didn't have cable. We didn't have, you know, we just had a few stations and the Twilight Zone used to come on, on whatever station she had. And we would watch that. And that would just intrigue me. I would, my cousins would call me weird and strange and, you know, make me feel so odd for sitting on my grandmother's bed and just watching the Twilight Zone and thinking about aliens, thinking about, um, which brings me, I wrote a story around Stevie Wonder's Secret Life of Plants, The Journey of Secret Life of Plants. And the Twilight Zone, or in between the Goosebumps, the Twilight Zone, and that, somehow I managed to write this short story around aliens and plants working together, like the plants were listening to conversations in my grandmother's house, and they came and abducted everybody except for me. <laughs> so that's the kind of that's the kind of stuff I was into. <laughs> that, that could have been the first the first seeds of Cindy Mayweather, right? <laughs> I think I think so. I think so. It's always been there. Yes. So I guess then the obvious question is singing. When does that enter the picture? And when were you first hearing from people that, wait a minute, you're better than, you know, the average person who thinks they can sing? <laughs> well, <laughs> I grew up in my I always bring it back to my family because they were my first supporters. You know, family can make or break you. You can come out the house looking some way. And if your family is anything like mine, they will tell you the truth about your outfit, your hair your makeup, <laughs> if something's not right. Like I grew up in that kind of family, brutally honest. And so when we would have cookouts or when we would have, you know, Thanksgiving holiday celebrations, um, everybody was singing. My dad also was an artist and still sings. Um, he didn't get an opportunity to, to, to really step into that because my dad was uh, on and off drugs a lot a lot of my life growing up. He's clean now. He's sober. He's written a book. He's amazing. He's my best friend. But growing up, you know, he would he would sing and he had this dream. And um, so he would he would invest a lot of time in me whenever he was clean and like out. And and I would be in every talent showcase performing and competing. And my family just encouraged me. They showed up. They were the loudest family there. My mom was taking me to and from talent show competitions. I had a group <laughs> called Shage. We were a duo. I was a part of this movement called the Weirdos, spelled with a Z. Um, but yeah, the art 
for me, was so therapeutic with everything going around, you know, in our community. As much as I grew up in, I'm proud of where I come from, I'm also let down by our appointed officials and also saddened just thinking about the amount of friends I lost due to gun violence. And a lot, a lot of people that I loved are not with me today. And so when I would cope with dealing with deaths, art and being on stage was my coping mechanism. I know your family, you were raised quite observant Baptists. And I, you tell this amazing story that sort of connects the dots back to what you were talking about, going to New York, this big move to the big city for college, that it, it was not an easy thing to do because there wasn't a lot of money around. And, and I, I have this one great story that I came across where I guess you literally go to the pastor and ask the church to pray for you so that you can have a job to make it possible. Is that, I, did I get the gist of that right? There was something where uh, a lot of things had to come together for you to go to that American Musical and Dramatics Academy. Oh, yes. I, I'm here, no doubt, uh, because of the prayers of, of my church and my ancestors. I believe that wholeheartedly. I'm not a deeply religious person, but I know during that time, my church family was there for me. Are sending me toilet paper, calling me down on Sunday and praying over my head. Because <laughs> to go from Kansas to New York, it was just like, you know, such a cult culture shock. Also financially, you know, although I had scholarships, it was a very expensive institution to go to. And so my mom didn't have that. I mean, I grew up again to working class parents. We didn't even own a have own a home. You know, we lived in duplexes and apartments and with family growing up. So, you know, my mom was living check to check and and she still found way I had to take a job my own self. I, I, I remember being a maid that summer to help pay for school. So everybody in the community was praying for me. <laughs> and, uh, and in fact, I, yeah. I, I know you're, you have this song that I think came around a few years later, but Sincerely Jane is really about how I believe your mom is at that point saying, you know, do whatever you have to do to stay there. Don't come back. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There was a lot, lot going on, you know, and it was just, boils down to the systems. The systems were not built for us. And so when you put black people and you put poor people in these environments, you know, due to proximity, there there's going to be a lot of violence. There's going to be a lot of unrest. There's going to be a lot of anger. Um, the police officers abused a lot of people in my family. And I lost two cousins at the hands of police officers. And my mom would write me letters and she would say, hey, Everything's fine, but this is going on. This is going on. Please do what what you what you need to do. And uh, I remember I had I, I I didn't I didn't finish school because I didn't want my heart wasn't in musical theater told by anybody else except for me. Like I didn't I I didn't see a lot of roles for black women. Maybe The Wiz, but that was kind of it uh, for leading black women. And as we know, this is a typecast business and. I was like, you know what? I'm a writer. I love music. I have original songs. I had so much I had to say. I said, I'm just gonna leave and create that room to listen to my inner voice, to follow my compass, 
and it led me to Atlanta, Georgia. And that's when I really started to become to become an artist. So Atlanta has produced a lot of great musicians over the years, obviously. And and you sort of found it sounds like your community around the uh, historically black colleges that are all within a, a small area there. What is Dark Tower at Morehouse? Uh, and <laughs> how did that lead to, I mean, I think maybe even in one night through that one meeting, you meet your future manager and two of your future collaborators in in something you started in 2004 called Wonderland, which has led to all kinds of things. But it seems like it all came out of one fateful kind of meeting. Wow. Yes. Dark Tower Project. You are taking me back. So I lived in a boarding house uh, on Parsons Street, and that that's deep on the campus of Spelman College, which is an all-black, all-girls college, Morehouse College, all-black, all-male college, and um, Clark Atlanta University. And I lived in a boarding house. I had six other roommates, and I... I couldn't afford to go to school down there. So I went to a community college, but I lived there and I was always on campus testing out new music, you know, writing and meeting new people. I had a friend, uh, one of my best friends went to Clark. And so she would kind of take me around. And I met this group of kids um, who were performing and they asked me to open up for them. And I did. And before that, though, my current manager had walked by me. He wasn't my manager then. We didn't even know each other. And I had invited him to a show that his group of radical and creatives were putting on. And that was the Dark Tower Project. And I was like, come to my show here. He was like, yeah, I know. I'm putting it on. <laughs> and so I did that show. And that's when I met Nate and Chuck. And Chuck asked me to pass Nate a pen. And Nate, Chuck, and myself, we've been writing and producing you know, over a decade of music and uh, coming up with mythology and, you know, using sci-fi to, 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 to create short films. And so I met, I met the Dark Tower Project kids and that name, Dark Tower, uh, was started by Alilia Walker, who is Madam C.J. Walker's daughter. And uh, Alilia Walker had just these free and like open and sexually fluid, you know, brilliant minds uh, in the Harlem Renaissance all together as her clique. And so that was kind of, that. that is what um, the Dark Tower Project was inspired by. And, you know, they would bring literary folks to Morehouse, artists like myself, uh, they were writing, they're thinkers, you know, there's just really starting a revolution. Um, and, and that was the group that, that, that found me and I found in Atlanta. And I think, you know, it sounds like you were performing wherever you could there to the point where it was, I'm reading about library steps and stuff, dorm rooms. It was just wherever there was an audience. And meanwhile, you've obviously still got to pay the bills, I guess, at that point still. So there, that leads in what I, to, I think, a uh, 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 story that probably wasn't that funny to experience at the time, but maybe now you can laugh at a little bit. What happened? You were, I guess you were working at Office Depot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Office Depot. Wow. With my high water pants that I used to wash and they would shrink every time I washed them. Uh, and so you would just see my socks. 
a lot. Uh, yeah, I worked at Office Depot to pay my bills. And I, shout out to Office Depot um, because I really did learn a lot about what I didn't want to do. And I did not want to work at Office Depot. Um, they knew that. And I think that's why they fired me. And the reason why I got fired was because I didn't own a computer at the time. And I used one of the display computers to write back uh one of my fans, I probably had like three fans at the time. I had just started my, my website and they had seen me performing on, on the library steps and they had bought my EP. And I was just thanking them because I was like, I have to keep these three fans, you know, and mm -hmm. I was just thanking them and they saw it on the camera. And I hear this, Janelle, to the back, to the back, please. Oh, and I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> and they had warned me before, you know, I have to give them, let them know. They did give me a warning. But in our, in our, you know, before they fired me, they were like, listen, we know this is not what you want to do. Go do what you want to do full time. And that was the last job I had, you know, where I wasn't working for myself. And then it was a struggle. I thought it was going to be easy, but it's a struggle being an entrepreneur, owning your own business, having uh, core values and things that you, you know, you say no to, uh, trying to pay bills. It's, it, it was a lot, but, you know, somehow I survived it. And so that, that inspired your song, I think, in 2003, Letting Go. 2004 is when you guys start Wonderland Art Society. And then where along the line does some of the, the best-known artists come out of Atlanta from, from Outkast, Andre 3000, and Big Boy? Where do they – how do you get on their radar, and, and why did they take, it seems like, a big interest in your future? Atlanta – is the home of some of the world's best black artists. And a few of the members, uh, Nate and Mikkel and um, Chuck and myself, we from Dark Tower, we started Wonderland. And Wonderland Art Society was and is meant, because it still exists, and we've expanded. But when we first started, it was centered around creating a different blueprint pushing stories that show black voices in different ways and showed all uh, as, as much of a, as much as us as possible from, you know, from rap to the collegiate side, to, you know, R and B to rock, to funk, to punk. <laughs> uh, we have screenwriters, we have uh, actors, we have so many artists from different mediums all coming together, um, like, you know, some Marvel characters. And <laughs> we were doing that. And, and Big Boy knew a couple of the guys in Wonderland and heard the music we were making. We were not even, you know, trying to entertain Big companies and corporations because we have very specific vision and didn't think that the integrity of our vision would gel well with the machine. We were just like, it's not going to work. They're not going to give us any money to do what it is we want to do. So we just took the independent route and Big Boy saw that and, and wanted to invest in that. Then he introduced us to Andre 3000 and they heard the work we were doing and they were putting out um, this album and film called Idlewild. And I had an opportunity uh, to do a song on Idlewild. Uh, Nate Rocket Wonder and myself, we worked together on it and, and Chuck Lightning as well. We all three, that was like our biggest, our first big placement. 
And they've been like mentors to us. They've opened the doors for black creatives to be as wild and free and, you know, as possible to also act and to 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 do it all and not limit um, ourselves. And, you know, I, I always try to show them so much love. Yeah. So I think Idlewild was 2006. Three years earlier is when you had your first self-financed demo, I guess, the audition, which I think is what Letting Go was on. And then it's also, I believe it's where we first got introduced to this character that you've sort of, uh, your alter ego of Cindy Mayweather. And, you know, other people in music have had alter egos, obviously, from Ziggy Stardust for David Bowie through Sasha Fierce for Beyonce and so many others. But for you, this was a, this seems like it was a very specific concept that, you stuck with for for basically all the way up until Dirty Computer. This was the line between you and Sydney Mayweather was sort of hard to spot for some people. And I guess I just wonder, you know, there were liner notes and things that gave some clues about who she was. Uh, the music itself obviously did, but at its core, for somebody who may not yet have discovered your music, can you give a little sense of who Cindy Mayweather is or was? Cindy Mayweather is. Um, the arc Android and Android has always been intriguing to me and, and a metaphor for the marginalized. Cindy represents the marginalized voices uh, and, and, that, and, and is connected to the LGBTQIA plus community, to black folks, you know, to women, to the untouchables, uh, to, to those, you know, the outcasts, to those who challenge the status quo and our threat to structures that don't listen to us, you know, that other us and do that in ways of the law. And so Cindy is um, like the quote of Metropolis, the short, the, 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 from Fritz Lang, she is the heart between the mind and the hands, the working class, upper class, you know, and she has always been aspirational for me, and I think that's what has been intriguing because as Janelle Monet, you know, I had a lot of trauma that I needed to work through. If I look back over my life, like I, I'm just becoming, you know, I'm, I'm slowly but surely stripping away, you know, feelings of, of things that I've dealt with, like from when my dad wasn't in my life, having abandonment issues. And that takes time to deal with that. And sometimes you don't always want to put that in your music. You don't always want to hear that. You don't always want to go over that pain. And so Cindy was a great healer for me. It was a way to 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 talk about these issues, but not use myself as the subject all the time. And that was honest to, to where I was. You know, I wasn't ready to um, take the Band-Aid off my wounds. Um, but Cindy was right there, you know, encouraging me along the way. And, and, and we're developing, you know, something bigger uh, for the story because this is a universal story, you know, with, with Cindy. She, she'll never die. Mm-hmm. So I guess another big, big moment in your life, and I know it was one that you approached with caution, was the relationship, the introduction made by Big Boy, I think, to Diddy, the recommendation in a way to, to check you out. And uh, and for you to then sign with with Bad Boy, which I just want to read back what Diddy has said for our listeners, quote, I just knew she was going to be important to music and culture. It was the same sort of feeling I had when I first heard 
Biggie or Mary J. Blige, and I wanted to help introduce this artist to the world, close quote. You, though, for the reasons that you mentioned a few minutes ago, I think you weren't, I mean, I think people might assume that a young up-and-coming artist would jump at the chance to work with somebody like that, but you, you really did approach it with caution, right? Absolutely. I approached, and I still do approach everything with caution. Um, <laughs> but back then, it was, you know, I was very afraid. I was very afraid of corporations that, and, and, and in the music industry, because I had only heard horror stories, stories of artists getting signed, and they come in one way and they leave another way. And slowly but surely, what made them unique is now manufactured and, and another version of another artist. So um, when I met Puff, he was in a space where he was ready to take risks. And not that he hadn't done that before, but in terms of like saying, hey, what is it that you want to do? I don't want to be involved creatively. I just want the world to know about what, what Wonderland is doing and what Cindy Mayweather is doing. He loved when he saw the artwork and everything. He was like, oh, yes, this is, this is where I am. So I trusted him then and, 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 I, and, I, and I trust him now. And he's always kept his word. And, you know, he's a great business partner. And I think that it can work. You can work with big labels and, and you can partner with people, but have your team. And my team, Wonderland, has been super important because they have been able to remind me whenever I forget the purpose or the mission or the why. Why am I doing something? You know, they're able to remind me of, 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 of those things. So as I understand it, you had already recorded Metropolis Suite One, The Chase, which then did he, or at that point, Puff that I don't know what he was going by at that time, but he uh, he says, let's re-record it and put it out through his label. Ends up nominated, you end up nominated for a Grammy for the first time. And then a year later, while I think performing for the first time in L.A., or after performing for the first time in L.A., comes one of the other big relationships of of your career. And, and I think people would be interested to know how one night in L.A., uh, you just randomly uh, enough kind of became buds with Prince. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, not, not a day goes by that I don't miss Prince. And it's a, it's a bit difficult for me to, to talk about him because not only was he a musical hero, but personally, you know, he invested a lot of time into artists like myself who were coming up in the industry. And one of the things I love about Prince and that night that we met is he just never allowed his mystery to get in the way of his mentorship. And I just remember getting that call, you know, hello, it's Prince backstage and not <laughs> thinking that was him and him inviting me <laughs> to a jam session and, you know, us coming over and we were smelling like so much perfume and cologne because we had just gotten off stage. We were sweaty and we couldn't even afford a tour bus at that time. So we showed up in a, in a white van, in a white church van. Yeah, it was, it was a night to remember. And I remember getting over there probably like around 11 midnight and not leaving till seven in the morning. Wow. Wow. And yes, not leaving till seven in the morning, him playing all of his songs, you know, three feet in front of us on a rug, us playing pool and us just talking. And, and he, I remember him saying to me, and this is what made me feel like I was on the right path, uh, was when he said, 
I love how you are moving in the in the music business. And I appreciate that. And, you know, I've been reading all your articles and I love I love how you've structured your relationship with Puff and 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 the industry. And I didn't even think one that he would even be reading anything. <laughs> but he was very aware. <laughs> Very aware and, and has always been very aware, and his spirit, I know, is is still aware and still, you know, still still with me. And yeah, and I believe he was the recipient of from you of the first copy of Argandroid, which was your first album, Argandroid Suites Two and Three, out in 2010. And according to Metacritic, which gathers all the reviews, the best reviewed album of anyone in 2010. Baby, I always wanted to ask you about how something else kind of came about in between that and album two, three years later, you, the, the song that you are on that reached number one on the charts, people might be thinking, was it make me feel, was it, they're trying to, you know, it was actually, we are young where you're featured with the band fun. How did that even come about? That seems like a little, like it's an awesome, it's an awesome random, but it does seem a little like, how did you guys all connect? (laughs) Well, they're label mates. Uh, they 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 are or were on Atlantic Records, and it came over to my team, and I listened to it, and I listen to all sorts of music. If you listen to my album, I do consider myself to be a genre bender, and I consider myself to be an eclectic person. And so, they asked me to do the bridge, and I was like, oh, and and do the chorus with them, and I was like, oh, okay. That's not, that's, you know, it's not going to take a lot, you know, from me. And we worked on, on that together and that's how it came about. They, people play that song (laughs) so much. They're still playing that song. Like, you know, and that's what I felt when I listened to it. I I felt like that, that was going to be a timeless party song and a song that you'll hear in countries around the world. Yeah. So in between albums two and three is when acting really seems to have entered the picture. And I think that, or at least re-entered, many people didn't know that you had that whole background of doing it when you were a kid. But how is it, I mean, it's pretty unbelievable for somebody's first two movies to both be nominated for Best Picture, for one of them to win, uh, in the case of Moonlight, the other one, Hidden Figures. And just how did that end up being in one year, your your, uh, hello to the film industry? It's pretty impressive. You know what? Maybe it was Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know? <laughs> Maybe it was Neo from The Matrix. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the universe, you know, putting that together. Because that, that wasn't the plan that I had. I mean, I had been auditioning for stuff, and I wanted it to be my first film to be this science fiction. Because, you know, I grew up my whole life, like, deeply 
influenced by sci-fi and you know the matrix was one of my is still my top five and um you know we had cindy mayweather and we had the arc android and i was like man i really want like it'd be great to be you know have your first your first thing be in this in this big sci-fi world and uh i'm so happy that that didn't happen because moonlight is iconic and and one of the greatest films uh in my opinion that we have and to be able to portray a woman that was an ally that was a listener to a young black kid who you know was coming into what it meant uh to embrace his his sexuality or a kid who just had questions and wanted to know and understand you know what these things meant who were trying to figure it out it was so great to be an example for people for other other families who may be trying to figure out how they can be supportive uh of of their younger loved ones or even older loved ones and and i think that you know i i hope that i honored all the teresas uh, around the world and mary jackson's not a bad role model either in in the sense that i just rewatched that to be fresh on it for for this and the scene where she talks to the judge about being the first and the importance of that and you know it was it was a smart way to to work the judge but it was also a very powerful scene and just a, a sentiment and i guess that one also must have then to be with two uh, already Oscar nominated one Oscar winning actresses to make up your trio in that movie. That's a, that's another special one. Absolutely. Being able to portray Mary Jackson, who was a computer uh, for NASA, you know, doing the math and helping get John Glenn into orbit along with Katherine Johnson and Dorothy Vaughn and all of the women, all of the black women specifically was an honor. You know, I'm, I didn't know about those women growing up. And I'm so thankful that now there's a generation of young little girls, little black girls who have them as their heroes. I get so many parents saying, my daughter loves math or science because of, of that film. And those are American heroes. And uh, it was it was an honor to portray them. And I, I didn't know that they were both going to be, you know, I'd never get in movies because I don't know the politics behind awards. Like, I just, I'm not, <laughs> I haven't done the circuit multiple, multiple times. So I do projects that I feel like are rooted in something bigger than myself, that I feel like a community of people will need this as representation. And, you know, I, I go I go from my gut and I go from my inner compass. And to, to be at the Oscars with those two films nominated, um, it's, it's still unbelievable to me. And I have to just follow that up by asking you were, you know, for somebody who, as you say, hadn't been to, I don't think you'd been to the Oscars before. I, I hadn't. Don't think, you know, you were at the craziest moment in the history of live television where nobody got hurt and you are a meme as a result of, uh, you know, when it was sinking in for you up on the stage, just uh, all of that. And I, I just wonder, because I've talked with, Barry and Mahershala and, and La La Land folks as well. I've never gotten to ask you, did you think it was some kind of a, a twisted joke or what did you think was going on as that whole crazy situation unfolded? I was stunned. I, I think I still am stunned. I still haven't figured out how to 
properly articulate myself around that moment because it was a low moment, then it went to high moment, then it went to wait. How am I supposed to feel right now? You know, like you, you think about it, like this whole cast of black people ushering off this whole cast of white people on national television, you know, feeling like you took up something from someone that was yours to begin with, you know, being a part of that cast, Barry, and I have to always shout out Barry, like one of my favorite directors and people, but he, he really just handled that with so much class and so much grace. But I think we, we, we all felt that Moonlight was just special and was so iconic and such an outlier during that show and, and during that award circuit. And I'm happy history corrected itself. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, last two topics, obviously, uh, going to cover your most recent album, which is great, yes. Dirty Computer in 2018, and then a homecoming. Uh, but let's start with Dirty Computer, because from from reading about you preparing for this, I was fascinated to learn that that concept of the whole uh, that a person in a way could be a dirty computer. Uh, and I'll, I'll ask you to expand on what you mean by that. But that was in your head before Arc Android, before any other albums that you've done. So what is that? mean uh, a dirty computer what's the metaphor about and and why did it take until it did for you to to you know go through with it dirty computer was you're absolutely correct um a concept that i had when we were working on the arc android and i think the concept of the dirty computer meaning representing something that's not supposed to be trying to erase information experiences, ideals, a lifestyle that is not in agreement with the majority in this world. And Dirty Computer dealt specifically with an administration, our current administration, actually, uh, and how through laws and through, through systemic structures, there is a campaign to erase Black people, from the LGBTQIA plus community, women. And when I say erase, erasing what makes us unique, erasing our freedom, erasing our freedom of expression, erasing the moments that we don't feel included and we talk about it, erasing our rights to vote. And, you know, it, 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 it was set in a dystopian world as a warning for what could happen if we don't all come together and realize that it's happening, one, admit, and those who are in the position of power and who can stop this cleansing from happening, what could happen if we don't step up, if we don't really step up to the plate? And it's still very relevant to right now, if you ask me. So yes, it was meant to speak from a more uh, first person um, space. I had always, you know, spoke, spoken about sexuality through my work. I think having the short film really doubled down on this concept of what it meant, meant for me to be a black queer woman in America, you know, having the visuals and, and everything to accompany it. So, or to go along with it. That's just the way you make me feel. 
It's so funny, Hidden Figures really made me put it out because I was like, is this a sign, the fact that I'm playing Mary Jackson, a computer, a human computer? Do I really, is this really time for me to put this album out? And, and honestly, that, it, that, that helped me because I was finishing it. And then Prince passed away. And so then I really felt like I needed to do it. So, yeah. And I think like it's just to come back to the idea of Cindy Mayweather, this, this is the first time that she's not really front and center. You are. And I assume it's because you now felt either that you wanted to or that because of the Trump situation, you had to uh, had a responsibility to kind of acknowledge your own situation, mm-hmm. which I don't know, maybe people in your own life knew what you told Rolling Stone. This You told Rolling Stone the day before the album came out, you, you, you came out. But that I don't know if that was something that was kind of commonly known to people in your life or not. But you've said that part of what may have kept you from doing that sooner was what probably keeps a lot of people from doing it sooner, which is you you have all kinds of things in your mind that there might be fallout in one way or another from doing this personal, professional, whatever. So I guess I want to just ask you, were, were any of the things that maybe kept you from doing it sooner actually, did they bear out as as problems or were they just things that in the end had existed really only as fears in your mind and, and people were okay afterwards? I think conversations are important. And I think what was able to happen with Dirty Computer and how I write always, I, I write how I write from a place of where I am honestly during that time. And with Dirty Computer, this was an opportunity to create community. Yes, I felt isolated most times when I'm thinking about, you know, what it actually means to grow up in a Baptist family and have to have these conversations around sexuality. And I knew I wasn't the only one. And I said, this can be a moment. This can be a moment for us to to have community. And that's really what, what really, you know, made me brave enough to want to speak because I'm, I'm a private person. I don't like talking about who I'm in relationships with. I always, I don't always like speaking about my personal life during every interview. I want to have the freedom to just talk about my work sometimes and that's it. But because my life was so rooted in my work, you know, we had, we had to address it. And I think I did Rolling Stone like weeks or a month, months before you guys read that. Um, and yes, my family, there were certain family and friends that knew. And because I have a big family, certain people who didn't, and that was fine, you know, um, but the people that needed to know, and even through my work, I, had spoken about it, um, but doing a short film, you know, you just, people will have lots of, lot, lots more questions. And I knew that, but I always encourage people, and this is Pride Month, and mm-hmm. it's so important to know that, one, I I don't use coming out. Mine is coming in. Like, I know who I am. Like, you guys are coming in to understand more about me. I'm not... Mm-hmm. I've been outside, I've been, (laughs) you know, walking (laughs) around, but, uh, so that's one thing. And then two, there's no wrong or right, right way. You know, there's no, don't put a time limit on it there. And and also knowing that how I decide to talk about my personal business is different than 
other folks and vice versa. We're not all in the same situations. There's some people, if they talk about being a part of the uh, LGBTQIA plus community, they could be ostracized from their family. They could be killed. They could um, go through a lot just to just to live freely. And that's something that we have to always keep in mind. And I think that one of the things that I was dealing with lastly was trauma around abandonment. That was a big thing that, and I needed to heal before I put this album out. I needed to understand that it's okay that if I walk all the way in my truth, if people say, oh, I don't really rock with Janelle anymore. Or if people say, oh, is she doing this for, you know, publicity? Is this really true? You know, I can't be afraid to lose people. And I'm, I became at peace with that. And, and that also helped me to, to be more brave and, and to walk lighter. Well, I hope that it reaffirmed that you made the right decision when you end up with two Grammy nominations, Album of the Year and Video of the Year for Pink. And I mean, some of these songs, I think people are probably going to count among their absolute favorites of yours for a long time. I know probably uh, uh, Make Me Feel, Pink, Django Jane, Americans, people, some people are saying this should be the new national yeah. anthem. And then there are these two where at least on one level, I think you did get to send your message back to the uh, administration that neither you nor I are quite are, are fans of, which both screwed and I got the juice where the two lyrics I just have to note on for our listeners uh, from screwed, the devil met with Russia and they just made a deal. And from I got the juice, the, this pussy grab you back. I think it's mm-hmm. it's great that you can mix the the multi levels of the songs. But okay, so now in the home stretch, I got a home is the right word. Homecoming <laughs> uh, is the second season of a show that was very celebrated for the first season a couple of years ago. In the meantime, since your year of Moonlight and Hidden Figures, you had acted in a few things. I know Electric Dreams for Amazon and Harriet, which was great. And then how did this idea that they were going to do a second season, but it was going to center on a different character and that uh, that might be you? How did that cross your radar and, and what really appealed to you about that idea? Well, the the writers and, and um, showrunners, Eli and Micah, reached out and I was a fan of Homecoming season one. I love the work of Stefan James and Hong and Julia Roberts. I was so excited, you know, to have her coming back to TV. She's, you know, one of my uh, cinema heroes. And when I got the, the, the scripts for a second season, I was like, if they can bring the things that I think are special about the first season over into the second season, it's a yes for me. Because I was told that Julia Roberts' character wasn't supposed to continue and this is going to be something new. And I was like, okay, well, if they can bring these elements, you know, that Hitchcockian feel, the score, which I loved last season, uh, the zoom-ins. And, you know, just in terms of how smart the story is is told, if that can happen, then I'm in. And when I read the scripts, I was, uh, my expectations were uh, exceeded. And I felt like they anted up on those things and... They added more action and different locations and um, the stakes were higher. I think, and I could be wrong, but was this the first time that you've been able to play a queer character in a performance other than music performance? Yeah, other than, well, I mean, I have my short film, Dirty Computer. um, Yes. But 
Yes, in terms of, of TV, this is, yeah, this is my first time playing, you know, a, a queer woman in, in a relationship. And that's what I loved about it, too, is you get an opportunity to see, you know, this me as as, as a black woman lead, Hong as, you know, an, as an Asian woman lead, and also Stefan, who is a part of the ser- series, all of us, you know, kind of leading um, this show, you know, that representation is, is important. I... Have I just binged it in one day? I loved it, and uh, I think a lot of people have been. You can't stop once you start. It's very it hooks you, and and I guess you shot it in a pretty fast way too, right? I read forty three days in between concerts and touring and all kinds of stuff. Um, had you ever had that long of a stretch of having to, you know, inhabit a character or or for that much screen time either? Aside from again, maybe the the Cindy Mayweather exception. Had there ever been any other character that you'd been that immersed in? Yeah, I mean, I shot a film. So my life, my 2019 started, you know, we had, we done, we, I, I had to perform at the Grammys for um, being nominated for Album of the Year. And that took, you know, that took some time because I try with anything to, like, if I'm going to, if I say yes to it, I'm going to give it, you know, as much focus as possible and I'm going to do the work to I was there it was the highlight of the oh, show it oh, was cool. amazing yeah. thank you yeah, so much yeah. we worked really hard and so then I went from there to um you know having to get ready for Coachella uh which was two weekends and that was a thing and then after that I went to I went out the country for a little bit and then I had to go and I had to film from May to June, I want to say, Antebellum uh, in New Orleans. So leading that, that was my first film that I led. And it it took a lot of energy. You know, it's one of my toughest roles to date. Uh, and then I went after that and went on tour for another month and a half. I went to Japan for the first time, which was, you know, incredible. That, that had been a dream of mine. And maybe had two weeks off and went straight into pre-production for Homecoming and had to film that for two months. So I really didn't have a break last year, but what I was able to do was carve out enough time to get into the character uh, for Jackie. And I, it was such a fun ride researching because I, I had an opportunity to watch a lot of films that dealt with memory loss. And if you haven't seen the show, Jackie wakes up in this boat, my character, and she has no memory, she has no clue of how she got there, who did it. And so you spend a significant amount of time going on this journey with her, at uh, her journey of, of self-discovery and who she is. And I watched the Born Identity films to get prepared. I watched uh, Memento, which is one of my favorite films. Uh, I watched this movie uh, from Nicole Kidman called Before I Go to Sleep, uh, where each morning her husband had to put these sticky uh, notes up and to remind her like who she is, who he is, because she suffered from memory loss due to trauma. And I looked at a lot of YouTube videos around short-term, long-term memory loss and amnesia. And I, it was important that I didn't play her one note. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, she wasn't just walking around disoriented the entire time, but that there was still some fight in her from from her you know from from prior to losing her memory uh, cuz she's such a leader and also there's this frustration about around not 
actually being able to remember things and trying to hide that from people around you because you don't even know if those are the people who did it to you. Everybody is a suspect. So I, I try my best to pick films and to bring my own unique nuance to the role to, to create uh, this, this sort of uh, uh, nuanced uh, character with Jackie. That's great. And uh, I guess just as a last question, I'm curious, you know, you've now done so much. I mean, I, I know Antebellum, we should just tell people, is unfortunately delayed because of the pandemic. But that's going to be in theaters when, God willing, we can go back yeah. to well, theaters. Well, August, August 21st is when, when they're saying. Um, so we'll see. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Yeah. And so just is there anything that's specifically still on the to-do list or is it just come what may? I mean, I'm curious because in very relatively short uh, lifespan so far, you've, you've ticked off of probably a lot of the, the dreams already. So I'm curious what's what's left. I honestly feel like I'm just getting started. I, I, I say that. I say that for anybody who feels like when you heal yourself from things, you just feel lighter and you feel like you can do so much. And I, I feel even more free. I feel even more radical. Radical and rebellious is the spirit that I have right now. And that's in art, that's in activism, and that's in just my, my, my life right now. That, that, that's where I am. So I'm looking to do projects that take big risks, that swing hard and looking to dismantle structures, you know, that, that don't work for us anymore. Uh, they never did work for us, but, but, you know, squatting up with other folks who are ready to dismantle the patriarchy, honestly, and dismantle white supremacy and, and all of that. And, and then I feel like we'll be able to get a lot more creative in the way that we collaborate and the art that we create. But as of now, the focus for me is just making sure that folks watch Homecoming. Um, it's a show that we worked really hard on, that I believe in, that also speaks to the times. You know, the, the other thing that got me when I, when I signed on is what this show has to say about capitalism over the well-being of humans and American people. How we treat our soldiers. I play a vet, vet and Stefan's character is also an, uh, a vet and, you know, who served this country and how we treat mental health for our vets, you know, the amount of money that should be put back into healthcare. And what, what it also says about the manipulation of the government, the manipulation of, of those in the position of power. And I think people will walk away asking themselves what side of history they want to be on and asking themselves because they see the decisions that we've made as characters if that is something that they would do. And if it is, you know, you have to deal with that. Well, congratulations. I, I loved every minute of homecoming. I love your voice, but I remember not only singing, I'm doing this. I'm reminded that just, I would listen to you read the phone book. I think you have the, just the <laughs> nicest voice to listen to. So uh, thank you for sharing it with us for a while and, uh, and stay safe during all this craziness. Oh my goodness. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for, for talking to me during these times. And I think this is what we need, you know, more of more conversation and more understanding of each other and where we are in our lives. How are you? How are you? How are you coping with things? I'm doing okay. I, I adopted this little guy just I before I got I heard that bad. little guy. Oh, I know, so cute. I'm sorry. What's his name? <laughs> he's his name's Kip, and oh, hi, Kip. Uh, he's a 
one year old little guy and you he makes so it a lot, a lot more bearable. Yeah, oh, that's great. great. Well, enjoy Kit. <laughs> well, Stay safe. Thank and you. Thank you again you for too. following my work and doing the research and asking those great questions. I really, you took me down memory lane for sure. Good. Well, so yeah. <laughs> thanks again. Be well. Okay. Take care. All right. You take care. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.